November 12, 2016, started out as just another Saturday night for 26-year-old Joey Comunale. Joey, who lived in Stamford, Connecticut, was in the prime of his life. He was handsome, popular, and athletic. He had been a star hockey player at Hofstra and now worked with his father. He was out clubbing with a group of friends in Manhattan's meatpacking district. They ended up at a club called the Gilded Lily. Shortly after 3 a.m., people were spilling out of the club, chatting on the street, waiting for Ubers and cabs, smoking cigarettes, talking and laughing. Joey was friendly and charming and always got a lot of attention from women. And according to his friend Stephen, who was with Joey that night, as they stood there on the street, he noticed that some women were looking at Joey. So Joey started talking to the women and to two other strangers, Larry DeLeon and Max Gemma. Larry and Max had been close friends since they were kids. They were now roommates in Jersey City. Larry worked in real estate. Max was a computer software salesman. Both Larry and his friend and roommate came from well-to-do families, according to 48 Hours, especially Max. According to news reports, his dad was a former mayor of Oceanport, New Jersey, and had been in business with Jared Kushner. At some point, while they were all talking, Stephen borrowed Joey's phone to make a call. But when he got back, his friend was gone. Stephen said that Joey had jumped into an Uber with Larry, Max, and the three girls. Larry invited Joey to his friend's apartment in Sutton Place on Manhattan's Upper East Side. So Stephen drove with his girlfriend back to Connecticut. He figured he would give his friend's phone back when he next saw him. No big deal, just another funny party story to laugh about later. The three women, Joey, Larry, and Max, showed up at the building, the Grand Sutton at 418 East 59th Street at around 5 a.m. Larry and Max said they could all party at his friend James Rackover's place. Larry described his friend as the son of a wealthy jeweler to the stars. James's father, Jeffrey Rackover, lived on the 32nd floor, while James lived in a more modest one-bedroom in apartment 4C. But as the night turned into dawn, something horrific happened, and Joey would not leave the apartment alive. As investigators searched for Joey's remains, they found out that James Rackover was not who he appeared to be. So who was James Rackover, and what really happened in apartment 4C? I'm Katherine Townsend, this is Red Collar. By all accounts, Joey got involved with this group strictly by chance. He was just at the wrong place and the wrong time. But at the beginning of the night, the meeting probably seemed fortuitous. This case is scary because we've all been there. In my 20s, there were so many random Saturday nights when I would walk out of a busy place in Manhattan. The night seemed filled with possibilities, and I just wanted to keep the party going. During the Uber ride, One of the women reportedly joked around with Larry and said she was taking his picture to send to her friends. They were much more worried about their safety than Joey. 
And this seemed to make sense because Joey was an athletic guy, super friendly, had no reason to think that he was in any danger. Once they got to the apartment, they kept drinking. And they started doing cocaine. Larry was doing bumps of cocaine off of a pocket knife that he carried. They kept partying and everyone seemed to be in a good mood until shortly after dawn. But then the sun came up and the girls wanted to go home. Larry and Joey were seen on the building's security camera walking the three young women out to an Uber at around 7.39 a.m. And then a few minutes later, going back up to the apartment. Joey lived with his parents in Connecticut and was especially close to his father, Pat. When Joey didn't come home that night, Pat said that he didn't worry, at least not at first. He knew that his son had gone clubbing and he figured he would just be back later. But Sunday dragged on and Joey never came home. Then he did something that his father said was really out of character. He didn't respond to Pat's texts. So Pat called Joey's friend, Stephen, and Stephen explained that he'd actually gone home with Joey's phone. Now at this point, Joey's friends and family immediately sprung into action. Joey's friends got onto social media. They scoured Facebook and Instagram to try and retrace his steps. And they did something really ingenious. They actually used Instagram's locator function. They found a picture that had been posted by one of the women in the group that left the club with Joey. Eventually, they found her. The women were able to give Joey's friends the address where they had gone and a name, Lawrence DeLeon. One of the women said that Joey had walked her and her girlfriend to an Uber in the morning, and that was the last time that they saw him. But according to CBS News, when Joey's friend called Larry and talked to him, Larry said that after putting the girls in an Uber, Joey had left to get cigarettes and never come back up to the apartment. So at this point, Joey's friends know that someone is clearly lying. So his father, Pat, took the information and went to the Stanford Police Department. Soon after that, Pat went to the apartment building on Sutton Place with NYPD detectives. The detectives pulled the surveillance footage from the building. They saw Joey on camera walking in after helping the girls get an Uber. They never saw him walk out. Pat told 48 Hours that at this point, he felt sick, and he did something that would change the course of the case. He told the building staff who were bringing garbage out onto the street to stop. He said he didn't want anything moved until they checked the garbage bags. Police opened up those garbage bags, and that's when they found Joey's bloody pants, his shirt, and his driver's license. There was something else in the trash, a chain that Pat says he had given his son, one that he knew Joey never took off. He told Crime Watch Daily that that's when he knew in his gut that his son had not left the apartment alive. Detectives were trying to make sense of what really happened to Joey Commonale in apartment 4C. They were looking at surveillance footage from the Grand Sutton. And detectives began taking a closer look into James Rackover and his father. To understand the story, we have to take a step back. They soon found out that James Rackover was not who he appeared to be. James Rackover was not his birth name. James was born Jimmy Bowdoin II in 1991 in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. 
According to Christopher Ballin, who interviewed James for an excellent article in Vanity Fair, James was raised by a single mother and said that he had a rough childhood. He was always getting into trouble, and by the time he was a teen, he had racked up a pretty extensive criminal record. According to Florida court records, James was arrested multiple times. Charges included burglary, armed robbery, domestic violence, drug possession, and, at one point, charges related to removing a court-ordered ankle bracelet and going on the lam. He did time in prison. But in his early 20s, James decided that he wanted a fresh start, away from, according to the magazine, the old criminal elements of his childhood. He decided that New York City was the perfect place to reinvent himself. So, after making several trips to the city, he relocated there permanently in 2013. He told the magazine that he thought he was destined for bigger things. Actually, reading this magazine profile is kind of bizarre because James seems to treat it like the magazine is profiling him as a businessman rather than a suspected killer. Whatever the case, by 2015, James was making money. But the source of his income was Jeffrey Rackover, a multimillionaire 50-something jeweler to the stars. Jeffrey's clients included Oprah Winfrey and Jennifer Lopez, and he famously helped Donald Trump with the $3 million emerald-cut engagement ring that he used to propose to Melania. The relationship between Jeffrey and James was unconventional, to say the least. James introduced Jeffrey to everyone as his father. But in fact, they were not related. They'd only known each other for a couple of years. In March 2015, James filed a petition to legally change his last name to Rackover. A friend of Jeffrey's told reporters that Jeffrey couldn't legally adopt James because James was over 18. So they decided this was the next best thing. Now, some newspapers, and later Joey's parents in a lawsuit, claim that Jeffrey and James had a sexual relationship. But James always denied this. He said that Jeffrey was a father figure to him. But the story of how they met changes depending on who's telling it. When James first appeared on the New York City scene, he told everyone that he was Jeffrey's long-lost son, and the two men said they had a DNA test to prove it. In fact, they both submitted sworn statements to the court, which represented that Jeffrey was James's biological father. But Jeffrey's lawyer would later admit that this wasn't true. Some of Jeffrey's friends said that they had met at a health club, and James said that he'd met Jeffrey in 2013 through a mutual friend at a dinner party. Whatever was going on behind closed doors, one thing is clear. In 2015, Jimmy became James Arthur Rackover. Some of his friends said that because Jeffrey had no children of his own, he wanted someone he could take care of and someone he hoped would take care of him in his old age. But the rumors of sexual liaisons between the two men didn't go away, especially after Jeffrey invited James to live with him on Sutton Place. Jeffrey also helped James enroll in the Fashion Institute of Technology, or FIT, and later to get a job as an insurance broker specializing in jewelry and fine art. Though, apparently, James was also trying to make it as an aspiring model. After a while, Jeffrey helped James get his own apartment in the Grand Sutton. Now, this is a big deal for anyone who knows anything about Manhattan co-op boards. They are very difficult. They asked for a complete financial report, references, a credit check. 
And they actually ask for proof using a mathematical formula that you're making something like 60 times what the apartment costs per year. But James and Jeffrey were somehow able to get around this. According to a lawsuit later filed by Joey's parents, Jeffrey convinced one of the other tenants in the building to sublease to James. The lawsuit also alleged that Jeffrey was James's primary source of income, that he gave him a $10,000 per month allowance and paid his rent, which was almost $4,000 a month. James told Vanity Fair that he paid his own rent and his own bills. But whatever the source, after scrounging for years, it seemed like James Rackover was developing a taste for the finer things in life. In interviews, he seems to be constantly trying to cultivate an air of success. Most people said that he appeared well-spoken and somewhat sophisticated. But some of Jeffrey's friends said that something seemed off about James. They told Vanity Fair that they didn't trust him, and it seemed like they considered him kind of tacky, nouveau riche. They said he wore head-to-toe labels and just seemed kind of shady. According to the magazine, James idolized Jeffrey, and he started emulating him. He copied Jeffrey's jet-set lifestyle. Christopher Ballin wrote, quote, Jimmy patterned his tastes on his mentor. His drink of choice became Johnny Walker Blue, which is Jeffrey's drink of choice. He traveled to London, Ibiza, and St. Bart's, and to Las Vegas for the annual jewelry show, end quote. James met Larry in 2016. According to Larry, he bonded with James over a shared love of working out and of picking up women. He also claims that James introduced him to steroids. Through Larry, James met his roommate, Max. Once the story broke about James and Jeffrey's relationship, the tabloids had a field day. At the heart of the story was the question, how did James really make his money? James continued to claim that he made money through his job. But the victim's father and several tabloids had other ideas. They said that James had been gay for pay. And it soon emerged that James had been in on several fraud schemes. Meanwhile, the tabloids were tracking down people from James's past. The Daily Mail interviewed his ex-girlfriend, Samantha Graham. She dated the man she knew as Jimmy for four years and lived with him. She said they were deeply in love at one point and talked about getting married and having a family. She said that she didn't believe that her ex-boyfriend was gay, but she said that she would not be surprised if he'd been turning tricks for money. She said that they split up after Jimmy kept getting in trouble with the law. Then she said he kept leaving her alone. He would disappear for trips to New York City and come back with stacks of cash and no real explanation for how he'd earned it. The couple broke up for good in 2013, and the guy she knew as Jimmy moved away and became James. While police investigated James Rackover, they were also closing in on Larry. Remember, James said that Larry and Joey had left the apartment together, but only Larry came back, according to court papers. But detectives knew he was lying because they had seen Joey walk into the building on camera and not come out. So detectives pulled more surveillance video. That's when they saw a man, thought to be James Rackover, transporting two pieces of luggage out of the building with a luggage cart. Detectives also found blood evidence blood that matched Joey's DNA on the luggage cart James used. They also found traces of blood in James's apartment and in Jeffrey's car. And they had something else. They had easy pass records from the car that James was driving. 
Police believe that James borrowed Jeffrey's Mercedes-Benz to move the body. They figured out that James and Larry, with Joey's body in the trunk, drove down to Lower Manhattan and then went through the Holland Tunnel that led out to New Jersey. Armed with this information, police went to interview Larry. And once he realized all the evidence that police had, he quickly turned on James. Larry said the group had come to James's apartment and kept the all-night party fueled by cocaine. He said they were having a good time. At one point, he said that he and James competed to see who could give the girls the best lap dance. The women actually filmed some of this on their phones, and this footage was later released by police. And in that footage, James can be seen straddling a woman in a chair as he and the women laugh, and the strip club staple song Pony by Genuine is playing in the background. It looked like a bunch of people hanging out and having a good time, knocking back a few drinks. There's absolutely no hint of the horror to come. After Joey and Larry walked the women outside, and shortly after they came back upstairs, a fight broke out. Now, what happened next is the source of a lot of debate. According to Larry, the fight started over cigarettes. He said that Joey had made a comment that irritated him. He basically kind of accused Larry of freeloading. So Larry said he started hitting Joey and didn't stop. Larry said that Joey had made a remark, something like, James got the cocaine, you know, I got the cigarettes. What have you brought to the table? Then Larry, who was known for his temper and had been in many bar fights in his day, said that he flew into a rage and attacked Joey. Joey was extremely intoxicated, so he couldn't defend himself. But Larry just kept hitting him, viciously, even after he went down and was unconscious. During all this time, Larry says that Max was asleep on the couch. And though he admitted to attacking Joey, Larry claimed that it was James who killed him. He said that after James saw how badly Joey was hurt, James insisted that they had to finish him off. He said they dragged Joey into the bathroom, put him in the bathtub, and started stabbing him. They tried to dismember the body, but found that they couldn't. So then they started to panic. Over the next few hours, the guys started cleaning, using bleach and paper towels. Now remember that at this point, Joey's friends and his father are calling, and James and Larry are acting like everything's fine. At one point, they actually stopped to order food from a burger joint, and they ate it. During the afternoon, they were discussing how to get rid of the body. And at some point, they hatched a plan, a crazy and evil plan. It was November, so sunset comes early. The guys waited for it to get dark. Then, sometime after 6 p.m., James and Larry can be seen again on the security camera. They're seen going into the gym in the stairwell, parts of the building that reportedly do not have cameras. After that, James called the building staff. He asked for a luggage cart. Then they wrapped the body in saran wrap and then a comforter, and Larry moved it over to the window. Meanwhile, James, who had borrowed Jeffrey's car, was pulling it around onto 59th Street. Then they threw Joey's body out the fourth floor window. James loaded several duffel bags and a backpack onto the luggage cart. He can be seen on camera wheeling this stuff to the front of the building. 
He then put the stuff into the trunk of Jeffrey's Mercedes. He drove the car around. Then the guys picked up the body, threw it into the trunk, and started driving south. Larry told police they ended up in New Jersey, where they dumped Joey's body in a muddy, shallow grave behind a flower shop. Then they poured gasoline on and set the remains on fire. After Larry confessed where they buried Joey's body, police found the remains in the location where Larry directed them. The prosecution would eventually get another break. A man named Louis Ruggiero, who was the 24-year-old son of Good Day New York anchor Rosanna Scotto, was a close friend of James's. He would later testify that James had confessed to him that he killed Joey. According to the New York Post, James told Louis, quote, I slit his throat and I stabbed him and we wrapped the body up in a comforter and threw it out the window so the cameras wouldn't see, end quote. James allegedly asked Lewis, do you want to hear the sickest part of it all? I came home and ordered pancakes from a diner and ate it like nothing ever happened. Lewis said he didn't initially believe his friend's story. He said that he told him, James, you're a good little Jew boy from Manhattan. You're not in Goodfellas. But he claimed that after he saw the crime scene outside of James's apartment, he started to think that his friend might have been telling him the truth. Vanity Fair magazine and many others are skeptical about this confession. For one thing, details of the confession changed in court. For example, in court, Lewis said that James admitted that he slit Joey's throat. This was the first time he'd ever mentioned this detail, and Joey's throat had not been slit. Larry and James were charged with Joey's murder. Max faced charges of accessory after the fact. All three men pleaded not guilty. Larry later challenged his confession, saying that he had not been granted access to a lawyer. Bail for Larry and James was set at $3 million. Larry posted bail. James couldn't afford it. And Jeffrey, who had paid James's expenses, helped pay his defense attorney, at least at first. At trial, Lewis's testimony would shed light on James Rackover's con artist tendencies and his ability to turn on people, even his friends, in order to blackmail them. And there were a lot of things that the jury didn't get to hear. For example, Lewis said that he and James had gotten into $20,000 worth of gambling debt. So Lewis said that James's plan for dealing with that debt was to extort him. He claimed that James secretly filmed him having sex with sex workers and then threatened to show the footage to Lewis's mom to force her to give them money. According to Lewis, James told him that he would have to pay the debts in full, or he would show Lewis's girlfriend the sex tapes, which, by the way, he recorded in Jeffrey Rackover's apartment, according to the New York Post. There were also some pretty lurid suggestions that Jeffrey Rackover may have been watching during some of these sexual encounters and that Jeffrey had a recording device in the bedroom of his apartment. But Lewis didn't make a great witness. For one thing, he had a criminal background, and he admitted on the stand that he was a drug addict. He testified that his habit had cost him around $1,200 a day and included a mix of cocaine, Xanax, OxyContin, and marijuana. 
But the worst moment of the trial was when the assistant medical examiner, Alex Zhang, took to the stand to describe Joey's injuries. And he projected those injuries from the autopsy photos onto a big screen. The jury heard that after the vicious beating, Joey was lying on the floor of James's apartment, going in and out of consciousness, but he was still breathing. Then James and Larry dragged Joey into the bathroom. They threw him into the bathtub and started stabbing him, a total of 14 or 15 times. Six times on one side, nine times on the other. According to court documents, Joey also suffered several other injuries, including multiple skull fractures and badly burned legs. Then, after Joey was dead, rather than expressing any type of remorse or horror for what they had just done, Larry and James immediately saw Joey as trash they needed to get rid of. So they decided to try to dismember him. First, they tried to saw off his arm with a bread knife, but they couldn't cut through the bone. So after stuffing Joey's bloody clothes into the garbage, cleaning the place with bleach, while Joey's body was still in the bathtub, they ordered food and sat there and talked about how they were going to get rid of the body. At trial, the jury was also shown empty bleach containers and photographs of Joey's remains covered in blood. Joey's father, Pat, had to leave the courtroom at that point. James struggled to avoid the images. He kept looking down as they were flashing up on the screen, according to the Post. Joey had been attacked and stabbed at least 14 times. Eventually, the stabbing caused Joey's lung to collapse. The knife also cut through major arteries, and Joey bled to death. Prosecutors also displayed a close-up image of a massive five-inch wound on Joey's upper right arm. This had happened when James and Larry allegedly tried to sever Joey's arm in the bathtub. According to prosecutors, James had no remorse. And it was his behavior after Joey died that helped seal James's fate. In court, prosecutors played a recorded call that James made from jail to an unspecified woman. In the call, he bragged that he'd beat the case. We're going to hear a portion of that now. Did you miss your boy? Of course, baby. Oh, no, I don't know if you've been following this, but I start trial September, so I'm looking at being home around October-ish. Sounds good to me. Coming home in time for Halloween. Daddy's ready. <laughs> <laughs> bro, my, you know my breath's going to be up there, bro. Like, my weight's going to oh, be yes. up when I hit the street. They're going to be like, yo, this kid just beat this, like, Rocky, and he's home? Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm going to get, like, a lot of respect. Like, a lot of people are going to be like, damn, like, he did his thing. He, like, kept his mouth shut and went home. James was charged with second-degree murder, hindering prosecution, tampering with evidence, and concealing a human corpse. During his opening statement, Assistant District Attorney Peter Casolaro said that James had lied to everyone about what happened to Joey, even though he knew that Joey's family and the police were searching for him. He called James a killer with a monstrous indifference for human life. Now, James's attorney said that Larry was the killer, and that James was only guilty of helping to clean up the crime scene. James's attorney also called into question the testimony of Lewis, the so-called star witness. In addition to the fact that Joey's throat was never slit, as Lewis had claimed, the defense also pointed to another piece of evidence, the gold horse signet ring that they claim was worn by Larry on the night Joey was killed. They showed pictures of the ring in court, and it was dented. 
This meant, the attorney argued, that Larry had hit Joey hard, hard enough to kill. And finding a motive was tricky. The New York Daily News quoted sources who told them that one of the men had made sexual advances toward Joey and that they attacked him after they were rejected. Now, the newspapers jumped all over this, but Larry continued to claim that the fight started over cigarettes. A lot of people believe that there may have been no motive. It was just a dumb argument that spiraled out of control between a bunch of guys who were hopped up on coke and possibly on steroids. Now, on the surface, this isn't a typical red-collar case. Joey was a stranger to James. He wasn't someone who knew about James's past as a con artist or who could have revealed a fraud of any kind. But once Joey was injured, James knew that he was a threat to his lifestyle. James probably knew that if Jeffrey found out about the body, he would lose everything. And I wonder if James and Larry had gotten away with this, what would have happened to Jeffrey Rackover long term? He had dreams that James would take care of him in his old age, but I wonder if that ever would have happened. Jeffrey had no children, so James would have been his sole heir. In my opinion, he would have been in a dangerous position. There were also four crucial minutes in question. During that time, security cameras in the building show that James left the apartment. Now, James claimed that this four minutes is when the fight between Joey and Larry happened. At this time, James said that he went up to the 32nd floor and sifted through a wall safe in Jeffrey's bedroom while Jeffrey was sleeping. He said he was looking for more cocaine, but he didn't find any. After Larry attacked Joey, Max woke up. And his story seemed to match Larry's. Max said that James started to panic about being sent back to prison for assault. Then, according to Larry and Max, James decided that the group's only option was to kill Joey. Max told the court that James had said, I gotta get rid of him, I gotta kill him, and started to strangle Joey. James's lawyers would argue that Max and Larry were best friends and that they had a lot of time to get their story straight. Max and Larry insisted that the stories matched because they were telling the truth. After the attack, Max left the apartment, took the PATH train to New Jersey, and got a ride home. He passed right by the doorman downstairs and didn't say a word. He didn't tell any of his friends what happened, and he never called the police. In fact, for days, he blatantly lied to the police, who were looking for Joey, along with his frantic family. Newspapers continued their fascination with James and with his appearance during the trial. The San Diego Union-Tribune wrote, The callous rackover, dressed in a perfectly tailored three-piece gray suit with a pocket square and soft pink tie, showed no emotion during the father's testimony, end quote. In the end, James was found guilty, and he got the maximum, 28 and two-thirds years to life in prison for killing Joey. At Larry's trial, he pleaded guilty to manslaughter and received a sentence of 23 years. Only Max got off pretty lightly. In what was labeled a sweetheart deal by the New York Post, Max pleaded guilty to one count of hindering the prosecution. He got just six months in jail. In court, Max made a statement to Joey's family. He said, quote, To the Common Alley family, I'm deeply sorry for your loss and deeply apologize. Every day I think about my choice and my interactions with the police and what I could have done differently. I'm deeply sorry, end quote. But Joey's father wasn't buying it. He was in court during all three trials. He called Max true evil. 
He said, quote, you're just as evil as DeLeon and Rackover. To be clear, you are just as responsible for Joey's murder as they are. If you were to be believed, the best thing anyone can say about you is that you stood and watched as DeLeon and Rackover killed my son because you were scared, a coward, end quote. In 2017, Jeffrey Rackover was named in a lawsuit filed by Joey's family. Though Jeffrey distanced himself from James after James's arrest, there were questions about how much Jeffrey knew and when he knew it. In the lawsuit, Joey's family alleged that James and Jeffrey were in a sexual relationship. They accused James of exchanging sexual favors with affluent men in return for profit, social status, and illegal substances. According to the lawsuit, Jeffrey had given James a dog. And at some point, Jeffrey came downstairs to James's apartment to walk that dog. So Joey's family was asking, how could Jeffrey have come down to that apartment with the body in the bathtub and bleach and cleaning products everywhere and not known that something was wrong? The lawsuit alleged that James, quote, obtained supplies including paper towels and cleaning supplies from Jeffrey Rackover Upon information and belief, defendant Rackover then returned to his apartment where he began the process of sanitizing the murder scene, end quote. The lawsuit also alleged that Jeffrey let James borrow his Mercedes-Benz to dispose of Joey's dismembered remains on the Jersey Shore. In 2019, Pat filed another lawsuit, this time against the Grand Sutton. He sued the building owner, unit owner, and two real estate companies who he claimed were negligent in subleasing a unit to James Rackover, considering his criminal history and drug use. Jeffrey Rackover moved out of the building in 2018. Friends say he's cut all ties to James. He's never spoken out publicly about his relationship with James, but friends have said the relationship and the betrayal left him devastated. James couldn't afford bail, so for months, he had to stay in the Tombs, the nickname for the Manhattan Detention Complex, the same facility that housed Jeffrey Epstein for months before his apparent suicide. Meanwhile, his friends were getting top-notch legal defenses and got to stay at home. James Rackover is currently behind bars in Attica in upstate New York. And according to interviews, he still seems to think that he can somehow make a comeback. He acts like he's kind of taking a break from the social scene rather than doing life for murder. He told Vanity Fair, quote, I thought I'd just be coming back from the Hamptons right now, like a regular cycle of my life, end quote. Louis Ruggiero moved to Los Angeles. According to his LinkedIn profile, he got sober and started working for Five Towns Records, which is described as a record label founded in 2016 by shoe designer Steve Madden. According to Vanity Fair, as of April 2020, Max Gemma was earning an MBA and hopes to go into real estate like his father. Jeffrey Rackover still lives and works as a diamond dealer in Manhattan. And Joey's family continues to live every day, remembering their son. His father, Pat, is a hero of this story because if it hadn't been for his quick action, this case may have never been solved. Pat immediately went to that building he got the security camera footage. He told the porters not to throw the garbage out. If he had waited just one more day, all of that garbage would have been gone. And Larry and James could have said that Joey left the building and never came back. 
there would have been no security camera footage to prove otherwise. Pat was his son's hero in life and after death. And in my opinion, he made sure that this won't happen to anyone else. Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? No! <laughs>